justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo, and together with Scott Henson, we're Reasonably Suspicious. This month, like Americans everywhere, the holiday season inspired Scott's mind to turn to package theft. And he tells me he's come prepared with a poem about the greatest Christmas package thief in history. I have, and it's called If the Who's Were Us, and and, and (laughs) let me know what you think of it. Oh, I won't hesitate. (laughs) Everyone knows the Grinch stole Christmas and how the Who's forgave him. But real-life Who's would likely never lift a hand to save him. Instead, they'd pass harsh criminal laws to punish him severely, and for the rest of his born days, they all would treat him queerly. (laughs) The Who's would have surveillance installed in all their homes so police could look inside to see if thieving Grinches roamed. The Who's would spend their Saturdays complaining on next door and wonder if some green guy they saw might be Grinch returning once more. Even who's with a greenish tint from now on would be suspect, the legacy of one night's theft that years could not correct. And that, my friends, is how we know the Grinch story is fiction. In real life, few who's could break their Christmas gift addiction. So even though his heart had grown and gifts returned to all who owned them, the clang of prison bars, not bells, would sound his benediction. (laughs) I think it's fabulous. (laughs) I think it captures the true spirit of the season. Yeah. You know, maybe in ways that the ending of the original did not. Who doesn't want stuff? (laughs) As near as I can tell, everybody wants stuff. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the December 2019 episode of the Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm here today with our good friend, Mandy Marzullo, who is executive director of the Texas Defender Service, or... May not be by the time you you hear this. She's she's leaving at the end of the month. But for now, how are you doing, Mandy? Doing great, Scott. All right. Well, you can let us know where you land here when the January podcast comes, or 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 not. You know, I am looking forward to some time off. Time off sounds pretty good. I wouldn't mind some of that myself. This month, Mandy and I discuss high fines and fees in Texas recent Texas exonerations, and review the biggest criminal justice stories in Texas in 2019. Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast today? The exonerations. I think recent months have had some complicated exoneration cases where it's hard to even know where to start, where it went wrong. And there's so much going on that I think maybe they hadn't gotten all the attention they deserve. So I I kind of agree with you. First up. An analysis from the Brennan Center discovered that Travis County had more outstanding criminal justice debt, including more debt paid off through jail credit among all of the 10 counties in three states analyzed in their report. The Brennan Center found that Texans had racked up hundreds of millions in outstanding criminal justice debt, much of which may never be paid, but which prevent final resolution of sometimes decades-old cases. Got who can address this issue in Texas and how? Well... That is the $64 question is who can address it, because right now this is something that's basically left up to judges' discretion, and Mm -hmm. this is individual elected judges exercising their discretion independently all over the state. And in Travis County, they're apparently using that discretion to assign much more debt than the Brennan Center found anywhere else in the country that they reviewed, so that was remarkable. At the same time, 
the Texas legislature has continued to lard on various court fees. And while there's always talk of simplifying that and getting rid of some that aren't appropriate, and there's even been some uh, litigation in court cases where they've said, oh, this fee or that fee is unconstitutional. It's been just dealing with you know the tide with a teaspoon. It's really been very difficult for anyone to wrap their brains around a true legislative solution on this. So it's hard to imagine the judges all becoming consistent because they're all independent people. The legislature has struggled with how they can address it even though there's been at least some interest. Mm. And so I'm not sure who or how, to be honest. I, I think defining the problem is good, but defining how you overcome the barriers to a solution is kind of tough. Yeah, I think I have to agree with that. You know, one thing that kind of stood out for me in this report is their identification of the overhead that Travis County spends in collecting these fines. Right, so the third it's, or more of, of what, it, they collect. Yeah, I mean, it was $9.2 million. That is an extraordinary sum. And that's an isolated figure just to the incarceration over the debt itself and probably is underestimating it, right? Because you have people cycling in and out because their case isn't resolved. And it, that is probably really hard to untether. And that's money that's just going to some law firm or collections agency that's taking a cut of what they get back. Well, th these were also imprisonment costs. So like at the county jail. Gotcha. As well. So I, I think that that hopefully can provide some motivation for folks to curtail this. It's true though that the, the fines and fees code is really hard to understand. Um, it exists in multiple places in the Texas code. And some of these fees are actually non-discretionary, or at least they were 10 years ago, the last time I really took a look at this. So they say that the fee shall be imposed, and there's no judicial discretion involved. That said, the Supreme Court has said that any time a fee is imposed, you're entitled to some sort of finding of your ability to pay. Right. And that's where the judges are dropping the ball. Well, and while we're on this topic, shout out to... Jamie Maselli at the Harris County Public Defender Office, who's been challenging a lot of these unconstitutional fees one by one, as the legislature had, assi had assigned these fees that were then having the money bled off to non-criminal justice-related topics. So she's been challenging those one after the other and been successful in, in several of them. Yeah, and the Brennan Center was also saying, I, I can't remember if it was in this report or in the predecessor to it, where they were talking about how having these fees and requiring that courts collect them, even if the money is used for a criminal justice purpose, which is what Keller wrote out in her Salinas decision where Janie litigated the issue, affects the integrity of the judge's decisions and their independence. That judges really should be just ruling on the issues in front of them, not collecting funds or taking their budget into consideration. That's right. And the Brennan Center report did a really good job of honing in on how that corrupts the judge's function yeah. in the process and how that begins to color other liberty-oriented decisions inappropriately. Yeah. And so I did like that. I mean, I feel like that this is one of those backwaters of criminal justice reform that folks see as important but would take so much work to delve deeply into it that I wonder how we're going to get there in the near term. 
it's it's important and maybe maybe you know the legislature could take a, a stab at it but even then how all those hundreds and hundreds of judges take it and implement it god bless you if you can even track it <laughs> yeah no I, I you're right it's also one of the one of those issues where democrats have been on the wrong side of it right they've often used fees like this to fund their programs. I mean, one of the first bills I've ever challenged was a Democratic bill to fund drug courts through an unwaivable mandatory $100 fee on all misdemeanor cases. The bill sponsor would not put even an indigence carve out. Well, we're going to talk later about the driver responsibility surcharge. The origin of that was Rick Perry wanted support for his uh, toll road program. And so he agreed to let the Democrats siphon off money for trauma hospitals from part of the funding mechanism. Well, the toll roads failed. The funding Mm. mechanism passed. And so we end up with this fee that it took 16 years to get rid of. We're going to talk (laughs) about it soon. That just was there for its own sake. And that was diverting money into the hospitals from the criminal justice system. But regardless, I feel like that. I'm very glad they they took this deep dive mm-hmm. to the extent that it gives us a roadmap to some policy reforms. That's great. I feel like some judges are going to have to take some leadership on this fines and fees issue in a way that just hasn't happened yet. It's happened on some of the debtors prison stuff surrounding classy misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. And Nathan Hecht has really taken leadership on that and a lot of the other people in the judicial council. And we're going to need to see some judicial leadership like that, I think for, for this issue to make. And I hope we do. Me too. Since we're on the subject of criminal justice debt, here's a song called debtors prison blues written by yours truly dedicated to everyone locked up in jail over traffic tickets this Christmas. This original little ditty features the same great Texas musicians who performed our podcast music. Sean Pander on vocals, the great Floyd Domino, a two-time Grammy winner on piano, John Mills as a one-man horn section, Glenn Fukunaga on bass, Donnie Wynn on drums, and the whole thing was produced by guitar virtuoso Gabe Rhodes. I hope you all enjoy it. And that's why my traffic tickets I didn't pay I threw them away I put them out of my mind Till I saw the red and blue in my mirror behind me I told him, sir, I'm ahead to work While he twisted my arm till the saw get hurt He said, not today, cause you didn't pay Gonna handcuff you and take you away Traffic tickets, baby And now I got those debtors prison blues Judge wants the money, but it's already spent If I had that much money, man, I'd pay them damn rent my job, couldn't make it to work, I left my little girl at school sitting on the curb, the wind is late, the bills are due, I don't know what I'm gonna 
Next up, several recent Texas innocence cases deserve listeners' attention, including that of four men convicted of murder in Waco in the early 90s based on false confessions and all manner of improper and ill-considered evidence. The Court of Criminal Appeals overturned their convictions without declaring them actually innocent, but the new district attorney will not re-prosecute them after finally tested DNA evidence showed another unrelated man committed the sexual assault of which one of the men had been accused. Meanwhile, the Court of Criminal Appeals overturned a 2018 burglary conviction of Adrian August, a young black man accused by an improper eyewitness identification. Police had told the witness particular descriptive information that identified the defendant before she saw his photos. Mm. Quentin Alonzo's 2003 murder conviction out of Dallas was recently overturned when it was revealed a police detective misrepresented evidence at trial. And the 2010 murder conviction of Lydell Grant in Houston was overturned after DNA testing disproved an eyewitness identification. So, Mandy, let's talk about some of the policy implications arising from these cases. Texas has been debating innocence issues for 15 years or so now. What problems jump out at you from these cases that still need to be fixed and where have reformers made progress? Well, I think sort of the big issue that a lot of the reforms have highlighted is the role of judges in this process as being one of them. That, you know, there's still a lot to be done, but often judges aren't recognizing or granting relief even when the facts are in front of them on habeas for for reasons that don't make sense to me as a partial, not an impartial observer. Well, not just habeas, but at all levels, you know, but we've talked about how on the DNA mixture evidence, we had judicial rulings on every little side tangent, except is this reliable evidence in Texas (laughs) over and over. We had a whole podcast segment on how, there was an array of decisions on DNA mixtures, and not not one of them got directly to, is it reliable? And then finally, this judge in Michigan, this uh, federal district judge, Janet Neff, comes out and does an actual Daubert hearing on it and addresses that question. So I, I think you're right. It's, on, it's not just habeas. It's at many levels many in the levels. process. You're seeing failures by the judiciary. Yeah, to or to exclude evidence, to to do a lot of things that the legislature has made a clear instruction to do. I mean, just look at the DNA statute. That is constantly being revised because the courts interpret it narrowly. Right, because some testing. likely innocent person can't get their evidence tested. And then as often as not, when they finally do, they're innocent. That's pretty much what happened with Michael Morton. We had to to get that law changed to say, no, the prosecutors can't object over those grounds. (laughs) And as soon as the objections to the testing were gone, lo and behold, it was somebody else. Yeah. And you do you see this, you know, sometimes with the junk science, right, you see sometimes courts ignoring clear evidence. I mean, this happened in the Reed case. You know, there was substantial evidence of his innocence, I'd say, that was presented to the court even before everything compiled even more before his execution date. And the trial court just sort of ignored it when it was 
analyzing it. Now, you were interested in the forensic issues out of the Waco cases. Talk to me a little bit about what you saw there. I mean, well, you know, I'd say that one of the big issues that still stands out there is sort of deficient representation. Now, the trial lawyer in that case is one of the better ones in Texas. And these were the early years of DNA. But there was an exculpatory DNA test result in his case file that never saw the light of day. Wow. And back in the, and what was this, early 90s? Well, the crime was in 92. I guess the trial was 94, I believe. Right. So that, that was certainly before DNA was really widely accepted. Our first DNA exoneration in Texas was 1998. Um, <laughs> and in fact, the Court of Criminal Appeals refused to accept it. Roy Kreiner had DNA evidence show that he wasn't the perpetrator in that case. And that was the origin of the legislature creating Chapter 64 in 2001, was that the Court of Criminal Appeals said it doesn't matter that the DNA said you weren't the rapist, (laughs) you stay in prison. Oh, my God. And so Chapter 64 was created to guarantee the right to access that testing and and to give you a path to get out if you you were in that situation. And it turned out a lot more people were in that situation than anyone could have guessed at that time. Yeah. And so, I mean, focusing on the good news, I mean, there are a lot of aspects of the trial proceeding that have been sort of fixed. So, you know, for example, jailhouse informants, there was a jailhouse informant who testified in that case that the defendant, the only one that was contesting his guilt among the four of them, confessed. Um, That was a repeat informant. Mm -hmm. and Someone used in multiple cases. Yeah. And his... His prior testimony was deemed inadmissible. Well, the legislature under the Tim Cole Exoneration Review Commission bill in 2017 explicitly says that that is admissible. So the defense can effectively cross informants who have incentivized testimony. There was also some extreme hair and fiber testimony saying that it absolutely matched fibers from whatever... And way overstating the forensics. Yeah. On every level, I think he also said there was no DNA and testified to to the fact that no DNA could be testified, which was also manifestly false. There was an exculpatory result in this case that under the junk science writ, someone can get relief or under a Chabot claim. So there's some improvements, especially on the back end, to be able to get out if you've been falsely convicted based on junk science, for example. What we haven't done a good job of is keeping the junk science out on the front end. Mm -hmm. And I'd say that, especially looking at a couple of these other cases besides the Waco cases, I would also say that we haven't fixed the eyewitness identification problem. Oh, yeah. When I was policy director at the Innocence Project of Texas, I was involved in negotiating our eyewitness identification statute and then was on a working group at the Sam Houston State that helped uh, develop uh, best practices that were disseminated to law enforcement. And I actually am fairly confident in the product that that working group came out with. Mm-hmm. There's one or two things where later research might niggle at it just a little bit, but the reality is most of it holds up even today. The problem is the courts are letting in lots of evidence that simply doesn't meet that standard. They're Mm -hmm. letting in evidence where very biased photo lineups happen. One of the lineups here was one where that they excluded, thankfully, was one where law enforcement had said to the witness, well, the guy wearing these clothes and who looks like this is the guy we think did it. Well, who do you think they're going to pick? Yeah. And so 
you know, when you're poisoning the well there from the get-go, you know, that's a problem. We had a one where the Court of Criminal Appeals did allow the identification mm-hmm. where the suspect supposedly was wearing a red hoodie. They found the defendant, and he didn't have a red hoodie, but he had one in his backpack. Mm-hmm. And so at the police station, they made him put on a red hoodie, and he was the only one in, uh, a, red hoodie. <laughs> in a red hoodie in the lineup. Well, the Court of Criminal Appeals allowed that testimony. And so as long as bad testimony that does not meet those standards is still getting into evidence, we're going to continue to see exonerations based on faulty eyewitness identification. That was the most common reason that people were falsely convicted among the DNA exonerations, Mm -hmm. which is one of the cleanest samples of false convictions that we'll ever have. And, And I feel the sort of scientific validity of analyzing what went wrong there gives us our clearest window into what causes false convictions in the system. Eyewitness identification was overwhelmingly the biggest part of that. Bad forensics was another very large chunk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and moving on to another piece, there were also a substantial number of false confessions, and that was another which were in aspect. the Waco case and informants, and so we're seeing all, all of them that. still crop up. Yeah, we're seeing that these problems have not gone away just because a law was passed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even though the Waco case was a while ago, it's still you know the behavior was egregious on right. the part of law enforcement. Next up, for our fill-in-the-blank segment this week, Scott and I decided to look back on some of the biggest Texas criminal justice stories of 2019. First up. Harris County settled historic bail reform litigation, eliminating money bail for most misdemeanor defendants, while litigation in Dallas and Galveston counties continued to move forward. Scott, fill in the blank. Bail reform in Texas is... Unbelievably promising. (laughs) Honestly, I never thought that they would get as far as they have in the Mm -hmm. Fifth Circuit when this was first launched, especially, you know, in the Donald Trump administration with so many new judges on the fifth circuit i thought this was going nowhere and i think it's just an idea whose time has come i don't know about you but i get the sense that a lot of people are pretty happy with the outcome Mm -hmm. in harris county it looks pretty good compared to the outcome of bail litigation and and sort of the more progressive litigation or legislation elsewhere Mm -hmm. it's an elegant solution to a complicated problem that avoids spending a lot of extra money just by saying okay there's no need to have bail for these lowest level misdemeanors we're not going to have a hearing at all and Mm -hmm. eliminate processes to save money and time i I'm really excited about how well that turned out. And it makes me think that this other litigation, which also adds felonies to the mix, this was only misdemeanors, Mm -hmm. really may have legs. And I think we'll find out in the next, in the coming year. Yeah, no, it's it's really exciting. And your your last response sort of feeds into my answer, which I was going to say is really a matter for the courts. I think that for a number of reasons, I think we're going to get better solutions at the local level as people are filing than if we tried to do a uniform bill 
through the legislature. It's exciting that's yeah. happening. And the bill we had last time, frankly, was an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> and so I think we've seen evidence of exactly what you've described, that the litigation is giving leverage to create change at the local level. Mm-hmm. And the legislature may not be equipped in such a dynamic situation with so many different local situations and local actors to be the one to craft the solution. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I Ironically, it was Senator Whitmire who mentioned this to me at one point. He said, you know, what we need to do is, you know, have Harris County and other jurisdictions become a model. And then once we're at that point, it can be ripe for legislation, but we need we need the model to point to first. Right, and for misdemeanors, I think they've come up with a really sensible creative way to do this that Mm -hmm. doesn't put a lot of extra burden on the counties and so let's hope that's what moves forward (music) 16 years after its creation the texas legislature finally abolished the driver responsibility surcharge eliminating billions of dollars in debt and freeing up more than a million people to get their driver's licenses unsuspended Mandy, fill in the blank. Elimination of the driver responsibility surcharge was? I think the criminal justice headline of 2019. You know, it undoubtedly affected the most people. It eliminated a really high barrier to reentry for people who have committed nonviolent offenses. So, you know, the legislature should be commended for, for taking action on this finally. Yeah, in in terms of the number of people who were actually helped by this, it was easily the biggest thing I've ever worked on. It was like Mm -hmm. one and a half million people had their driver's license suspended under this program. So that's absolutely enormous. I would say that elimination of the surcharge was the first step. You know, we talked earlier about these uh, mm-hmm. fines and fees and criminal justice debt. Even here, we eliminated the surcharge. And again, there were one and a half million people who who had had their licenses suspended. Of those, fewer than a million of them were eligible to get their license back immediately. Another several hundred thousand uh, had to pay a $95 license reinstatement fee before they could get their licenses back. Mm-hmm. And then another group of around three or 400,000 had their licenses suspended for other traffic tickets under what's called the Omnibase program, mm-hmm. which is where they suspend your license for non-payment of traffic tickets. And just as a uh, uh, background, there's about 1.1 million people who have licenses, but the, when it comes time to renew it, it will be suspended under that program. And so we still have not addressed that at all. There's still several hundred thousand people who have not been able to get their licenses back under the DRP because of the reinstatement fee. And quite honestly, the other 900,000 or whatever who are eligible to just mm-hmm. get it back, the lines at the DPS license centers are so long that I actually question how many are going to be able to get in and do that. So, I, 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 you know, man, it was a huge thing. You're right. It was the biggest thing that happened this year. Mm-hmm. In many ways, the biggest thing I've ever been involved in. in yeah. The quarter century of criminal justice reform work. And yet, all it does is highlight how much more there is to do. Next, besides abolishing the driver responsibility surcharge, 
Texas didn't accomplish much on criminal justice this session, but they did accidentally decriminalize marijuana possession, at least sort of, by reclassifying it as hemp that crime labs couldn't test. So Scott, fill in the blank. Texas's accidental pot decriminalization was... Friggin' hysterical. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed this so much. This was just... First, it was it was this hilariously dunderheaded move because the DPS crime lab director had shown up in public testimony and told them that this was the case. Yeah. And simply no one on the committee intellectually grasped what was being said to them. And and it just flew over their heads as though Einstein were explaining relativity. <laughs> and they passed this anyway. And and I just found it delightful. And I also find it delightful because it's this wonderful natural experiment. Yeah. Where there's no way the Texas legislature was just going to completely decriminalize pot. In fact, they wouldn't even reduce the penalties last session. The Texas Senate wouldn't even take that bill up. Well, now it has just happened. And lots of very conservative jurisdictions with Republican district attorneys have said, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to touch this. And we've seen that it really didn't create any problems. Nobody's really complaining that there's some crime spree. It's just not a big deal. So I, I, I found it hysterical. I found it delightful. That, that this was just one of the funnest things that happened of, of the legislative session to me. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that's sort of similar to your last point is that it's an example of how localized our criminal justice system is because you've got Tarrant County and a bunch of other, like you said, conservative jurisdictions not prosecuting these cases. And then you've got Kim Og in Harris County that's still, you know, going gangbusters on this. Or wants to send them through her diversion program, but yes. Uh, I can. I don't consider diversion... To be not prosecuting. That's right. Compared to just, we're not going to do that. Yeah. yeah. And d diversion, you know, not in, in some cases, depending on the requirements of a diversion program, you don't always want your client to go through it. Right. Like often th those are for people who don't have any problems and who are not going to reoffend anyway. As That's a way right. of avoiding having a criminal record. That is a very different thing. And I'd say it was also emblematic of the whole legislative session where something that was completely an unintended consequence and just made them look silly was like really the highest profile criminal justice thing they did <laughs> it was a it was a weird bad session on criminal justice reform and and there were a lot of missed opportunities and so this i guess is just one interesting bright spot <laughs> no no definitely In Houston, two innocent people were killed and four police officers were injured when the HPD narcotics squad raided a house based on an informant one of them had fabricated. He and another officer now face federal charges. In Dallas, former police officer Amber Geiger was convicted of murder and sent to prison with a 10-year prison sentence. Soon thereafter, in Fort Worth, a white police officer killed a black woman named Tatiana Jefferson in her own home when he was called out for a welfare check. He has also been charged with murder. Public outrage over these cases dominated policing politics in Texas for much of 2019. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. These episodes are significant because... Charges were filed or indictments were issued. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, 
there wouldn't be a public discussion on this or the issue would be presented to a grand jury and they would inevitably know bell. Um, so it's exciting to see that police are being held accountable. Granted, these are the most egregious cases <laughs> with their use of force, but it, it's something. That's right. Well, I'd say something similar. I'd, I'd say these episodes are significant because they're historic. We have only seen police officers indicted um, in Texas, certainly, as the most rare possible one-off. The last Dallas police officer indicted before Amber Geiger was in the 1970s. Mm. And so to see this happening repeatedly and under both Democratic and Republican district attorneys Mm -hmm. um, in Fort Worth, that is a Republican DA who brought charges in the Tatiana Jefferson shooting. Amber Geiger was initially indicted under the Republican DA, and then John Crusoe took over and prosecuted the case. So this has been not just a moment when police officers are beginning to be brought to justice, brought you know, brought to a public trial in ways that we've never really seen before, mm-hmm. but it's happening with bipartisan backing among prosecutors in large part. It's not happening everywhere, mm-hmm. but where it's happening, it's not some controversial partisan thing. It's a, oh, wait, lawyers are deciding to do their duty thing. Mm -hmm. And I find that incredibly exciting. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. Texas's prison population declined over the last seven years, and the state has closed eight prisons. Somehow, prison health care costs never got the message and continued to increase by 53%, more than three quarters of a billion dollars annually. Inmates over the age of 55 largely drove these extra costs, reported the Texas Tribune. Those prisoners make up just one eighth of the prison population. Scott, how could Texas avoid paying health care costs for inmates eligible for AARP membership? The only way that Texas is going to reduce prison costs is to incarcerate fewer people. Mm. We are at a point now where a majority of people incarcerated in Texas prisons have very long sentences, mostly for violent offenses, but many of them are incarcerated far beyond what's necessary for public safety. There has to be a reduction in the overall number at this point. You Mm. can't just niggle around the edges uh, or charge the prisoners for health care costs been there done that have the (laughs) t-shirt next up a prison supervisor was arrested for taking a tdcj inmate work crew to do work on the air conditioning at an inmate's mother's house the supervisor was under investigation as part of a contraband sting he's being charged under the law of parties with unauthorized absence from a correctional facility an offense normally reserved for inmates mandy what does this tell us about tdcj's contraband problem that it's pervasive. It's it's extraordinary that you would get to a point where they're, you know, brazenly not at work. <laughs> Last one. Last month, we discussed a new report from the Sixth Amendment Center on Indigent Defense in Amarillo. That document revealed the extensive loss of court records in a ransomware attack in Potter County last spring. The county refused to pay and it lost its files. At this point, reported the Sixth Amendment Center, quote, it is unclear whether the court's lost records can ever be recovered. The district courts had not been storing backups of their data, and they also had not been paying their software vendor to back up their files. Unquote. 
So Scott, what are the implications if Potter County Courts can't produce those records? There are so many implications. <laughs> oh my God. Find the nearest mirror. Throw a rock at it. And for every shard of glass, there's a different implication to this, you know, of all the random, you know, proportionate sizes that you'll Mm. find the shards of. Big ones, small ones, everywhere you look. They have had to restructure their internal systems around paper copies just to keep their dockets going. But more than that, all their historic records are gone. It's like (laughs) a mass expungement that was completely unintentional. I know. That was my first thought was, well, that's one way to comprehensively expunge someone's It's outlandish. And there have been more than 160 jurisdictions across the country, um, government jurisdictions, that have been victimized by these ransomware attacks. And the idea that you would be caught in one of those having not backed up your district Mm. court files is amazing and really should be cautionary tale for every other jurisdiction in the state. Oh my God, that's enormous. Absolutely. Craziest thing I ever heard. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Or listen to it on my blog, Grits for Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. Also, shout out to Carrie Blakinger. Congratulations on your new job at the Marshall Project. And shout out to Pam Koloff. Go read her New York Times Magazine cover story on a career informant from Texas and the implications for the death penalty in Florida. You did an amazing job, Pam. Yeah. Congratulations to both of you. There you go.